Hello folks, welcome back. And if you are a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to talk about what it means to be a high performance human. Contrary to what you might think, it actually has nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike or run. But it's got more to do with excelling and being better in every area of your life than most of your peers. So we're talking about things like sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, work habits, and exercise, and lots more besides. So if these are areas you'd like to improve on, then we would love to help you. I currently have availability to take on a few clients, and Beth, my wife, who's a certified life coach, also has some availability. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered and you can find contact details in the show notes. Today, we got part two of my conversation with Jack Maitland. Last week, we talked about the journey of Jack from orienteer to mountain runner to elite triathlete and then into coaching. We talked about our work together. His working leads um, with the the beginnings of the Performance Centre and then the development work with Alistair and Jonathan Brownlee finishing up at the end of the last episode at the end of 2011 when Alistair was a favourite for Olympic gold at the London 2012 Triathlon. Today, we talk about the lead-up to and the events following on from London 2012, the four-year cycle up to the Rio Olympics in 2016, what happened when Jack moved on from the Leeds Performance Centre in 2017, and the start of the collaboration with Beth Potter, which takes us up to the present day. So, let's get back to Jack. You get to the end of 2011... You've got the athlete, home athlete, who's favourite. You know that if they just continue with the performance levels that they've got, that's probably going to be more than enough to take home the gold medal. Um, how do you? What do you do about preparing the training for the next year? Because obviously everybody always wants to push on. You know, I want to be a little bit faster here. Um, make doubly sure that there's going to be no margin for error. How do you manage that as a coach? Well, I mean, it's absolutely definitely a tricky one. I mean, I suppose looking at it now with the experience I've got now, I would say that you you just got to remember that, and, and Malcolm was big on this as well, is that you can only ever hope for incremental improvement, you know, and even that is not linear. So you've got to believe in the, uh, the process and have, you know, be prepared to maybe just do the training you did the year before again. Mm. And, and that will build things so that you reach a higher level of performance. Yeah, and I guess that incremental fitness doesn't just apply to the athlete you're looking after, it's everybody else as well. At that level, there probably isn't going to be anybody who suddenly improves by two minutes on the run. Well, you certainly hope not. I mean, of course, it can happen. Um, but yes, exactly. There's a sort of natural level of um, rate of improvement that you're likely to see. Um, but athletes that are newer in the game have, are, mm. can be in a steeper um, trajectory. Um, younger athletes, potentially. Um, so yeah, you've got to be cognizant of all of that uh, when you're looking at it. Again, you've got to think about the fact that you only have control over what you're doing, not what other people are doing. Mm. I mean, from my perspective, logically, I'd say, well, you're already good enough to come out of the front of the swim pack. Um, you know you can be at the front of the bike pack 
and you know that you're probably the fastest runner. So if we can keep you healthy and just keep doing the training to maintain that performance level, that should be enough. Well, exactly. But then I also got injured. So, you yeah. know, then that then obviously threw in a bit of a spanner in those works because then suddenly you, you're wondering, are we even going to get those incremental improvements that we were hoping to see? Mm. Um, and you're a little bit, you know, fighting it, fighting to just hold, hold your place. Well, and at that point then, um, how are you looking after your athlete if they're injured? Because that's like so frustrating after having all those hopes sort of, you know, partly smothered. I can remember the endless pool in his garden and um, everything else there. Um, you know, what are you doing anything there to manage that or are you leaving that to other people? Oh, it's, it's both. It's both. I mean, you know, as you sort of said, previously probably leaving the medical side to people and again we had, we had very good people on on board both locally and in British triathlon side um but I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to min- maintain calmness and confidence you've still got complete confidence in that athlete that this is just something that they will overcome people get back from injuries um and they've done the training in the past and they were at that level of performance the previous year mm. and so and so on and so forth so you um maintain unwavering confidence in them which hopefully will help them to to maintain their own confidence mm. and the rest is history as we know so it <laughs> seemed to all work out in the end but i guess there's a, a like like a swan serenely paddling along the water there's a lot of uh, flapping around in the back in the background yeah, and, and it, it was, you know, probably extreme in terms of expectation. And, you know, you go down to Hyde Park on, on that morning and there's 100,000 people there. And, you know, there, there are literally 100 plus deep. That was uh, one of them. On the course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The rest of Yorkshire was there. Absolutely fantastic atmosphere. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, you can perform in, in, in those circumstances and you, you can really do it. Mm. So, fantastic result in 2012. And you've gone through one four-year cycle. Uh, um, it's it's stressful going through a four-year Olympic cycle, isn't it, um, for coaches? I don't think people from the outside realise that. Um, there are some coaches you've gone through many. Jürgen Grob is one I can think of, went through, I think, five Olympic cycles. Um you know what you're committed for. And I remember Dave Brailsford saying that, that one of his senior coaches, I think it was Simon Jones, wasn't certain about, you know, if he could make it through to the next Olympics. So he had to go because they didn't need that uncertainty within the camp. Um, how how tough a decision was it for you to commit for another four years of full intensity up to, to Rio? Um, at that time, it wasn't it wasn't really a problem at all. I just saw it as natural progression. Um we had, as I mentioned previously, some other athletes who were already performing well. Um, non won World Under-23 Championships uh, in 2012. And we, after London, we had an influx of other athletes who chose to move to Leeds because of, of that success. So we had a really good squad um, and a good setup. And yeah, I just wanted to continue to do more of the same. I always thought it was quite funny when I went off to Hawaii when people were talking about 
Boulder being the centre of triathlon. And I'd say, well, actually, I think you might find that Leeds is now the centre of triathlon. And uh, um, there'd be a bit of a debate about that. But actually, in terms of uh, the shorter distance racing, Leeds really was the centre of the world. There was innovative things happening. Um, you, you talked about that dream of having you know, the Olympic squad mostly based in Leeds. And it, it pretty much was, wasn't it? Five athletes plus Richard Varga in Rio, um, who was trained here. He was racing, was he Slovenia? Slovakia. Slovakia. So, um, you know, that was six athletes from Leeds going to the Olympics. Um, and Leeds really was the centre of that. That must leave you with a really nice warm feeling that you developed that from scratch and it had risen to a very prominent position in the world of triathlon. Yeah, no, that was it was really satisfying, and you know, a couple of aspects that were were good was that um, all three of the men's team were sort of born and bred yeah. leads, really. Gordon Benson there as well had come up through the the, the junior programs, and um, you know, with it within leads, uh, and also that we'd managed to develop a very good women's program alongside the men's because it was relatively unusual. Uh, at that time, a bit less so now, but most squads or countries had the strength on one side or the other. Mm. You look to the American women or the French men um, mm-hmm. or uh, Darren Smith's squad of primarily women that were doing well. So there were usually there was a sort of specialism, but we actually managed to have a very strong, strong on both sides of the of that spectrum. Mm. I'll come back to that um, link with female athletes and their development in a bit, if you don't mind. Um, Rio was pretty successful. Um, We got gold and silver this time with Alistair and Johnny. And do we get bronze bronze and fourth place? And fourth, yeah, with Vicky and Non. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, building on from 2012, so you'd thought that everything was going from strength to strength in Leeds, but... Um, <laughs> things didn't quite turn out that way. Um, yeah, I mean, the the Olympics were were extremely successful. Richard Varga was eleventh as well. He was a smidgen away from a top ten, which was a, a great result for him. Gordon, unfortunately, had a, had a mechanical problem, but um, yeah, it was it was it was very good uh, results. And you know, Vicky was the first British woman to win an Olympic medal in triathlon, so that was great. Um, it was good and then we went on into the world championships that year in, in, in Cozumel and um, I also went on to there I felt a little bit of an obligation to keep um, everything turning over in Leeds and younger athletes coming through and and all of these things um, but that was a really really hard um, championships for us um, the infamous uh, collapse by Johnny. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> um, when he nearly had the the world champs in the in the bag. Um, so yeah, from that point on, things were were quite difficult, and I was definitely a little bit burnt out after going through that um, mm. that cycle um, of, uh, of 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 the of coaching and and, and bringing everything up to, up to Rio. So the end result of that was at the end of the following year when Malcolm decided to retire from, um, well, from his his uh, his positions because he was, you know, 
it was his second retirement, I think. <laughs> he was definitely of, uh, of the age to do that. Uh, I decided I would step back from, from working for British Triathlon as well. Mm. So it wasn't the end, though, because now we've got a new chapter to talk about. You've mentioned Beth, and uh, we've had one Olympic cycle, obviously, since then, which was uh, the delayed Tokyo race. That's right, 2021, um, where... The British women seem to uh, do a bit better. Well, Alex got silver, of course, um, and we won uh, golds in the relays. Um, so, but the British females were starting to show through, and um, you'd started working with Beth Potter, didn't you? Now, actually, we could get we should go back to Rio because I think that was where you and Malcolm first met Beth, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So Beth was in the uh, UK. Uh, or the GB athletics team um, in Rio, running 10,000 metres on the track. Um, but she was having thoughts to perhaps doing, doing triathlon. Um, she'd swum as a youngster. And I guess we just had had the example of Gwen Jorgensen, who had, was a, a late transfer into the triathlon world, had just won the gold medal. And Beth probably quite rightly thought she could um, replicate what Gwen had done. So Malcolm and I met with Beth um, on, you know, on her uh, suggestion in in Rio after her event, and um, talked about her possibly coming to Leeds to to train with us. Uh, so we agreed at that point that she should come up for a trial um, week. She was uh, working and living in London at the time, um, and she came up and spent a week training in Leeds. And the outcome of that was that, I mean, Malcolm and I could both see the potential in, in, in Beth as an athlete, um, and she was keen to, to take the plunge and, and make the move. So it was a big move on her part because she you know, moved her whole life to Leeds. She gave up her job. She was a teacher um, and turned into a full-time athlete. Yeah, that must have been quite difficult then because she's committed everything and come to Leeds, and you're stepping back a bit and Malcolm's leaving. Yeah, well, that was the exact problem was that at that point, um, Malcolm's re retirement was sort of the first thing that was announced and uh, Beth did actually ask me after that, that, you know, you're not going, are you? And I said, no. <laughs> but then it turned out I was. So I felt a bit bad about that. And um, she had at that stage already secured selection to the Commonwealth Games in 2018 so I said, well, why don't I just keep looking after you until the Commonwealth Games? Let's see where you're placed then. So, so that's what we did. Uh, and she went, she actually ran um, the 10,000 and the, uh, did the triathlon at the, at the Commonwealth Games in 2018. And afterwards, we, we did a little bit of think about it, but ultimately we decided that we would keep working together. And obviously I'm very happy that we did because since then, you know, I've just been helping Beth to, to develop as a triathlete. Mm. Now, we talked earlier about that model of swim and run and how important it was to basically have the mechanics of swimming grooved in when you're young. And then you talk about Beth and she was there she was a 10,000 metre runner. She obviously focused on her running um, but a bit like Non, because uh, I've spoken to Non about this. She didn't. She she was also a top class runner, wasn't she? she was getting injured, tried triathlon out, 
And it would be easy to think, well, how do these girls come from running and learn to pick up swimming? You know, particularly age group athletes look at it and think, well, I've been trying for years and I'm not getting any better. But they, but both of them do have that background of swimming when they were young. So even if they've sort of let them go a bit, the basic mechanics of how to position your body in the water and catch the water are still there. They just need reviving. Yes, exactly. So she she'd done enough swimming as a as an age grouper, you know, a junior, um, to to make the skill development that was that was necessary. Um, so really, when she when she started triathlon, it was it was a question of just starting to find the fitness, the swim fitness, mm. and, and the strength um, necessary to to swim well. Um, but she had enough of a basis to work with. I remember when. Um you were working with Jess Learmonth because Jess obviously was in uh, another local person, you know, both you and I have um, probably competed with her father and I certainly went training with Andy. Um, when Malcolm was talking about developing Jess into a runner, he had to be very careful with the volume that she was doing because uh, her ankles were more floppy like swimmers and she didn't have that sort of resilience and tightness in the, in the musculature around her lower limbs that would keep her resilient. Um, was it the same with Beth? You know, she she um, she's got that runner's physique, so less upper body muscle. Um, so you have to build that. You have to build the strength. Did you have to be very careful about how you built the volume up so she didn't get a, sort of any overuse injuries? Um, yeah, to, to to a degree. I mean, I think swimming's a little bit less risky than running because um, it's not load bearing. Uh, but yeah, everything had to be coming back to that sort of idea of, of things being a bit incremental. Both in, in sort of training volume and uh, intensity, and looking at it over time, um, she was doing a lot of training, a lot of run training when she she came, of course. But um, total training volume went up quite a lot because cycling takes a lot of time. Mm. <laughs> so, but she managed to reduce her running mileage and retain her running speed is that a difficult concept for somebody who's a runner um to to drop their running volume you know is that something for, difficult for them to take on uh yeah no there definitely was a psychological aspect to that and also beth is in the sort of difficulty that she didn't have any funding when she moved to triathlon mm. um so she but she was she did have some support as a runner so there was a little bit of an incentive for her to to keep her running going, probably both um, because of that support, but also probably just because psychologically she maybe wasn't quite ready to let go of it completely because mm. she wasn't going to suddenly become a world-leading triathlete. So mm. there was a bit of a, a crossover period there. So she ran... A Commonwealth Games, she ran a World Championships after taking up triathlon, but she ran, you know, she did a couple of big athletics events still. Oh, and she set a world record, didn't she, on the road, or world's fastest time? Well, she did, yeah, yeah, yeah in five, 5K, yeah, she did. So, yeah, so she, she definitely didn't lose her running. So let's talk about that running a bit then, because you've continued with the team emphasis, haven't you, um, now? Um, who Who's involved with Beth's team in terms of you know, a swim bike and a run training? Yeah, so, so Andy Henderson is a run coach now, and he, 
he um he took that on um yeah quite some some years ago in Perth joined his his training group um so that's been extremely good for her and um led to that world best on the on the road amongst other things um and then Dane Mitchell is a strength conditioning coach at Leeds Beckett University has also worked with her for a considerable length of time and then she swims with um, she swims with Coz, who was a lady that we came across very early in the uh, coaching cycle, wasn't she? Um, and she's got a strong relationship with Alistair and Johnny. Yes, exactly. So after I left um, Leeds Triathlon Centre, it uh, subsequently split into a couple of groups and Alistair and Johnny formed their own training group with Cos Tantrum as their swim co- as their lead swim coach. That's a real name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a real name, yes, I believe. Um, and uh, yeah, and so Beth um, has joined that swim group. So she does all the swimming there. Um, she does quite a bit of her riding with um, some of the other athletes from that group, and including both Alistair and Johnny. So that's been fantastic for her to have their influence. Yeah, it's, it's always really interesting, isn't it? Because as age groupers, a lot of them are, uh, are very isolated. You know, they swim on their own at the pool. Um, they run on their own. They perhaps don't cycle with a group, and that's quite telling when you see triathletes generally. They're not they're not that skillful as as riders in groups. Um, but this group group ethic and group community spirit and uh, cohesiveness that you get. I think is something that a lot of age group coaches could learn is, you know, rather than giving people all this stuff, get them to work in different groups and just manage the program. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's a very good, good thing. And I think that a lot of age groups would be very surprised at how simple the elites training is. You know, there's, there's the vast majority of the biking is just going out and riding their bike. And they rarely use, uh, indoor trainers um, you know they, they rarely work to power or, or anything like that so yeah and that probably goes across the running as well the swimming perhaps is a little bit the other way in that they have the advantage the elites do that they have they'll be in a swim program with a lane and a coach with a stopwatch mm-hmm. and um, you know they get a much more <clears throat> regimented swim training regime than most age groupers can manage. Yeah, um, I suppose it is slightly different um, for for the elite athletes that we're talking about here because they're racing or they're primarily preparing for something that's a stochastic race. So it's easy, easy, very hard for a little bit, easy, hard, easy. You can't really predict how that's going to go. So riding on the road, particularly around in Yorkshire, where you can sprint up little hills, then you've got a downhill to recover, then sprint up another hill, then some steady work on the flat, being in a group, group dynamics, knowing where to put your bike, you know, doing through and off. Those things probably are more relevant to racing in a group and less relevant to steady state power-based type of work um but still i think um for age groupers those sorts of skills are invaluable and there is a growing number of draft legal races now um where those skills could come to the fore yeah yeah all of what you said there is 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 true and i still think that for most age groupers even if they're racing draft illegal events is that they could get a lot out of just putting the miles in riding mm. if they, you know, had the 
<clears throat> commitment and desire and time to, to do it that way. Yes. And I think that might be the case. Uh, time might be the important thing there is if you're working, you're not getting home till after dark. I'm not, I'm not sure about how keen I am at riding with a group on the dark on the little narrow lanes around here in the winter. But um, yeah. uh, certainly on the weekends, there's no reason why you can't go out and ride with a group. No, exactly. And, and a lot of age groups do do that, of course. But, but we are also fortunate here that we have fantastic terrain to ride on. Mm. You know, we, ha- we have the Orchard Hills on our, on our doorstep. And that for sure adds something to the benefit that the guys get from riding here. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about working with female athletes. You've, you know, from my perspective, you've always been really good at working with female athletes but that's not the same for all elite coaches what is it that thinks give you that ability jack have you ever have you ever reflected on that um a a little bit i mean the the answer is i don't really know and i never thought that i was particularly better at coaching females or males um i always tried to keep the group really balanced at leeds triathlon center um and if anything, you know, you probably have to do a little bit of positive discrimination in, in the area of having enough females in your training group, or you've got to be really careful with how you select people into squads and things like that to keep that balance. Because, you know, with our sport, there are more males doing it. And... um there's a tendency perhaps to look at if you if you just look at pure speed absolute performance then you're going to have end up with more males in front of you than females so you have got to make sure that you're comparing like with like Mm. so i was very strict at doing that in order to develop males and females equally um now that i'm coaching mainly privately it's is seems to be the case that I seem to have a lot more female athletes than male athletes. So quite why that is, I'm not certain. Um, but it must be something to do with my my approach to coaching. I hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot. If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week, ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. Well, let's talk a little bit about then working with Beth versus that those early years of the performance squad when you, you your main athletes were Alistair and Johnny to start with. Um, maybe think about some of the differences and some of the lessons you've learned because also you have the dynamics of them being the two brothers as well, sort of helping each other, but some, maybe some of the friction that comes around of it being two brothers working together. Yeah, I, uh, I tend to think more about the similarities. Okay. <laughs> you know, because... Somebody like Beth is is a high-performing individual. She has the traits that you expect to see in somebody who's who's going to make it 
at a high level in a similar way to uh, Alistair and, and Johnny had and, and a lot of these other athletes that I've worked with. So I don't personally feel that I treat her any differently because she's female. Mm. I did read, though, that you have had to sort of, or you've changed your philosophy and your mindset a little bit working with Beth um, in some of the things you've been doing. Yeah, but that's that's probably around some other areas. Um, so I think that whole thing about the fact that she came in with a high run volume, um, zero bite volume and, and close to zero sum volume, and then we had to sort of build that program appropriate for her over the years. Um, and we've managed that incremental sort of step by step, moving up the the levels of performance, Continental Cup races, then World Cup races, then World Series races, and so on. A little bit interrupted by the, the lockdowns and, and, and those uh, difficulties there in terms of both training and particularly in terms of competitive opportunity. But she's done extremely well at racing to a standard and then moving on up to the next standard and it's mm. it's not always easy because sometimes you know there are restrictions you, you have to have a certain level of world ranking and and you also have to have a certain level of performance to to want to move up to the next um stage so but what to in order to keep her moving up you obviously have to look at where strengths and weaknesses are and this, the running's always been a strength. We've had that from the beginning. But the other two disciplines at different times had aspects of them where she needed to improve in order to get to the next level. Mm. So that meant then manipulating some of the training prescription to make sure that she made the gains that she needed to make. Mm. And I've just written down there, you know, that, that first meeting in Rio... 2016, we're going to be, you know, she's already pre-selected for Paris next year. So we're looking at that 2024, that's eight years. So you you talked about incremental gains. There's only so much the body will actually absorb and improve in a year for most people. And she was already competing at a high level. So to change sports, you've you've got to have resilience, but you've also got to have patience. And I think sometimes... Um, this is a lesson that age group athletes could learn is you know it's endurance sports take a long time to complete but they also take a long time to prepare for and I'm not talking months here I'm talking years to build layer upon layer upon layer to develop and sometimes as you mentioned earlier for an age group athlete you maybe don't need to do any more training if you just did what you did the year before having double that amount would still lead to improvements yeah, not just for age groupers. That's also largely true for elite athletes as well. Um, so things um, progress, of course, but some of that progression can be fairly subtle. Mm. Um, but yeah, you're always looking to work on on things that you perhaps haven't worked on before. But yeah, the main thing is that building year on year um, from the foundations that, that were there previously. I, I also see that impatience leads to a a sort of like an over eagerness to push on too hard and then you break the consistency and I I sort of 
remember listening to so many athletes over the years being interviewed. I think I've talked about this, look, you know, so many times in podcasts and blogs. And the interviewer says, well, what's been at the heart of your success year? And they'll say, I had a fantastic winter of training. You know, I didn't miss a day. We overlook so much just how important consistency is and just, just making sure that no session compromises your ability to get to the next one and do it properly. Completely agree. And yeah, and it's a super de- danger and an easy trap to fall into to think that you have to do more mm-hmm. to get better. And um, yeah, a little bit more is fine, but it, it really is a little bit. And the patience to work, to wait for the results to come as mm. well is the, is the other thing. And again, you're absolutely right. When you come into the sport fairly new to it, then you will see significant and fairly rapid improvements. And everybody likes that. We love to see that we're improving, but you're going to plateau at some mm. point. Mm. And then it gets trickier. And that's when people start to question what they're doing or, um, you know, trying to look for the that silver bullet that's going to get them to the next point, stage. But, but there isn't a silver bullet. It's just more of what they were doing for longer is probably the main thing. Well, so when you get an athlete who says that to you, come on, Jack, I need to push on, I need to... How do, how do you temper that then? How do you just... How do you persuade them to believe in the process and trust the process? yeah it's difficult I mean I think that ultimately they're only really going to trust you when they see the results so if you manage to work with an athlete and get them to the point whereby they they can see for themselves that they have improved then you you gain a certain amount of trust at that point Mm. if you've got experience then you've perhaps got a bit of reputation that you can also ride on and you can give examples of other athletes like you (laughs) who just kept doing the same thing and they and improved you can also be that person so you you know you have to just get the athlete's confidence um during 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 the last 23 years when when you've been try coaching You've obviously you've shadowed a lot of coaches. Um, you've come across a lot of coaches. Who, who've been the biggest influences um, in your development, the folks that you've learned most from, would you say? Well, I think an early influence in, in, in triathlon was Darren Smith. So Darren was uh, appointed as the Scottish national team coach when I was still an athlete. And he brought a completely different... Um, coaching environment to to what we to what we'd ever had previously you know Darren was one of these people who knew a lot about everything and um, wasn't afraid to get everybody to to work to his ideas and and that was fantastic and he had so much that we did not know that he brought to the table mm. I seem to remember you telling me that he tried to, he was the first person that tried to change your running style, which had been very successful as an orienteer and a, and a mountain runner. Yeah, I mean, that's a good example, really. So I did change my running style uh, under Darren's tutelage and um, became a much better runner. Um, sadly, for me, it was right at the end of my career. But um, yeah, that was something probably should have addressed much earlier, but I didn't have that input. Mm. Um, others 
Um, I think, again, that group environment that we had within British Triathlon um, was, 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 re- was really good. Um, and I got a lot out of working on uh, teams with, with people like um, with Glenn and um, Chris Jones. Mm. Um, so, you know, we were, we were very fortunate that we were getting, again, often coaches who had um, a lot of experience in, in one area. And they were a bit like us trying to find their way in triathlon. But you can tell an expert coach when you see an expert coach, can you? Mm-hmm. Um, so you then learn to um, to uh, copy their behaviours, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I guess Malcolm would have been a significant factor in all of that development, wouldn't he? Yeah, Malcolm, absolutely. Because, you know, we, <clears throat> we worked closely for many years um, and he did have that level of experience beyond mine um so yeah he and 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 like i said before similar uh groundings similar approach and and everything so it it worked very well for me to have malcolm as a Mm. uh, somebody to work alongside and to to learn from i mean you're still going strong as a coach but you're in your early 60s now and i guess at some point you might feel that you're going to hang up your stopwatch, as we coaches do. Um, do you mentor any of the next wave of coaches? Because obviously we've got to keep developing the people that are coming behind us. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I have to say that I, I feel that I'm very much still developing as a coach. and um, Like all good coaches are still developing, right, and still learning. Yeah, and I... You know, I'm a, I feel that I'm a much better coach now than I was um, when I left the Strathlon Centre, for example. I've, mm. I've, I've gained a lot in the, in the, in the last number of years. Uh, yeah, it's just another six years of experience there, isn't there? So it's, it's quite significant. Um, and I've been very fortuitous to be working with Beth, and so therefore to have had my hand in that um, high level environment mm. and and the sport moves on as well of course you need to keep developing or else you get left behind mm. so from a personal perspective yeah i'd like to think i keep can keep coaching and and um adding value for some time um but yeah developing other coaches you mentioned it yourself earlier that you know we always had that idea that we would we would developing coaches was an important part of developing a good program so we quite actively identified coaches that we thought um, could be good to get involved with the programme and brought them in. Dave Green mm. uh, was, was a great example of in the, in the northwest there. Um, and I did a similar thing at Leeds Triathlon Centre as well. And as we had opportunities, um, we, we, we brought people in. So Dan Plews, um, Dan, yeah, gone on to really good things in New Zealand. Yeah, become an extremely good coach. But he was um, he he was he spent a year at, at Leeds. He's also proving that he is actually a really good athlete as well. Um, <laughs> I think people see that he's Ironman times now. I know he's just gone under eight hours in uh, in California, but that uh, that he was actually one of the top juniors at the time, wasn't he? When we first got to know him. 
Yeah, no, that's right. He he, he came in as a, as a sports scientist, actually, um, as well as a coach. Yeah. Because um, that was his um, mm. background as well, of course, as an athlete. So, yeah, he, he had all of those um, those constituent parts. But, yeah, so with Dan Plews and then um, Rob Harvey, uh, then people, some sort of former athletes of mine like Liam O'Neill, who, who came in as a coach later on. And we also had that emphasis on having a lot of female coaches. Mm. So back when we ran the the junior squads, we had um, Louise Hanley. Mm-hmm. Chrysostomy. Yeah, um, that's right, uh, as well. Um, and, uh, and Fiona Hoare and yeah. Helen McVicker. Yeah. Um, and all of those I would try to use within the triathlon centre too. Um, yes, I, c- I can remember that you you were sort of unique within British triathlon there in t- in in trying to actively um, sort of promote and you know assist the development of female coaches. But that that sort of enthusiasm wasn't always shared amongst other coaches, was it? Sadly. Well, I'm not good. Say I'd go quite so far as to say that. But. <laughs> that was how it seemed to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I had a definite idea in my head that similar to trying to keep a balance between male and female on the squad, that we should also, should also have that on the, on the staffing side because I, I saw the advantages of, of having that, of having um, females involved. I mean, why wouldn't you want to have the whole sort of... Um, human <laughs> sort of experience to draw upon so so i think i always saw that as a definite thing that we tried to do um mm. a bit of positive discrimination if you like to make sure there were fe- almost females on the staff but it has been a known problem within performance sport that, mm. f- that f- although there's a lot of females coaching in general within sport there's very, very few that make it through to that performance level and you get a very male bias mm. um, once you start to look at um, elite and Olympic level sport. And yeah, I have been involved in some initiatives to try and um, rebalance that and have tried to do something within British triathlon. And yeah, I didn't feel that it was really taken on board by everybody else at that point in time yeah and i think that's i know i know that that's been a theme as through these last 20 years is that um that the pathway which you know to use clive woodward's term with would have you know in the perfect world had everybody's vision and noses pointing in the right direction towards medals and olympic success if that's if that's what the the goal of the program is Uh, but and I'm not. I'm not going to point the finger directly at British triathlon here. We're going to talk about them because we're talking about triathlon. And but I think this is the same throughout the world of sports. And I certainly know that in other triathlon organisations in other countries, they have similar sorts of problems. Politics and sport um, have to go together from the very top down to the federations and the athletes. But it's not always an easy sort of mix, is it? No, it's it's not, and it's. It's a general problem, and it's it, it's a it's a strange one, isn't it? Because sometimes you think that coaching and that sort of process and improving athletes is is really very simple, and it is to us because we're <laughs> at the cold face, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And you think this this real if this 
it's if this was really this easy that I feel it is, then why is everybody else not doing it? Mm. And um, so you think, well, you must be doing more than you think you are. Um, but it's difficult to keep the direction and stay true to yourself when you have to be accountable, we have to explain everything that you're doing because you may not even know why you're doing things or how you're doing things. You just know that you're seeing athletes improve and get results. But you you know, just because you're good at doing it, you, you're a good coach, doesn't mean you're necessarily good at explaining that to other people mm. or giving them a sort of um, um, schema for how to replicate it. But that's what governing bodies and UK sport and ultimately government they're looking for they're looking for something that's reproducible they want to know okay how do we coach to get those olympic medals again um which is fair enough because they have to all be accountable to the level above them but it can be really difficult at the coaching level Mm. to to meet those demands i've got quite a few clients who are in the health you know, health services, doctors and nurses and consultants, as you probably have. And I think they say the same about the health service. Look, how e- how difficult is it? We've got patients and we need to help them get better or help fix their problems. But now you're asking us to say how we do it, tick these boxes and have a budget for that. So we can't spend too much on getting that person healthy because somebody else higher up in government is putting a budget on because they've got to do it in their department. So uh, I don't think sport is any different, but when you're just trying to do your job, it can be incredibly frustrating and distracting. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's very similar in other spheres of life and the health services is is, is probably a very good example. Um, So, yeah, so it's a little bit difficult to know what to do. I've, I've, I've since I left Leeds Triathlon Centre, I've, I've worked with a couple of uh, overseas federations and you just, you come up against, you know, exactly the same problems there, probably even worse so because it's harder to do it at arm's length because you cannot be there doing the work on the ground that I was able to do here. So you need somebody else to be able to do that for you. And yeah, and that's much, much more difficult when you've also got to get the buy-in to support those people on the ground at all the levels uh, above them. So it's really difficult. Um, but it's been so refreshing to work with Beth and she's largely worked outside of the system. Mm. You know, she's, of course, on British Triathlon funding now, um, but her support team that she's built up around her um, are largely not British triathlon employed staff. So she's a little bit independent of that. Mm. And that's good, I think, because it's it's probably more sustainable. Let's talk about something completely different for a moment. Um, you are a huge advocate for yoga and that whole, not just not just getting up every morning and doing a few stretches that look like yoga. You do yoga and you're fully invested in it you go off um with kirsten your partner um for a month at a time to india you've been doing that for a while i I can remember sharing a room with you at a triathlon conference and going for a run and you coming back and you've got your recording of your yoga that you work uh, routine that you're working through and you've been heavily committed to that for a long long time when when did that all start and, and how did it start 
Well, actually, it started after um, that uh, trip out to Nepal to do the Everest Marathon. So I spent those 10 weeks uh, there largely trekking around and um, getting to to know some Nepalese people and, and seeing their way of life. And um, when I came back to the UK, I, I thought I want to keep something of that approach to life that there was Buddhists in, in Nepal had. And um, I thought yoga was just in my naive mind, something that might um, do that for me. <laughs> so, and that was something I could easily find. So you could go and um, I could go to a, a yoga class in a church hall in Leeds and um, get something of, of that sort of Eastern experience. So it was very much from that perspective that I, that I started um, doing yoga. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, certainly as you're getting older, I've, you know, with the encouragement of um, Louisa and Kirsten and yourself, um, I've got into that perhaps not to the same extent that you have, but I definitely see the the other stuff beyond um, just doing a daily mobility routine, you know, the breathing, the sort of serenity, the um, you know, being at one with your surroundings and all of that sort of stuff. And I know we talked about um, that's what it is. It's about buying into the whole lifestyle and, um, you know, un- understanding what that is rather than just going to a yoga class. Um, do you feel that, that that practice, because that's what it is, I remember Kirsten saying that, it's not performance, <laughs> it's a practice. Um, do you feel that that practice on a daily basis for so many years has... Um, has given you perhaps an outward calmness that's A, helped you with your coaching and B, helped you deal with all of that um, political stuff that we've talked about and those other challenges? Well, it's hard to know because, you, yeah, you don't quite know for sure if it's from from that. Um, but I think in general, yes, you'd like to hope so. Um, and I think you can see when I look at yoga teachers and you look at them you can see the same thing in, in those older, respected, senior teachers in, in the yoga world. They have very similar characteristics and ways of working to those respected coaches mm. with all the experience and, uh, and gravitas that you, that you get with, uh, with that. So there's definitely corollaries there, aren't there? Um, so hopefully I'm getting a, a bit of both that some of the yoga sh- rubbing off on the coaching yeah and you've you've got this uh, as well as the work you're doing with beth you've got your own little business now with with the kirsten called sport ashram and um, where you're combining those sort of uh, the multi-sport thing with the, the yoga lifestyle um how's that working out and, and how much of a hard sell is that for a lot of athletes because i find it incredibly difficult with most triathletes to persuade them to find time to um to do something they probably know is good for them yeah, it is difficult. And I think that, I mean, what you tend to find is that some athletes get it, you know, and, and, and some athletes really appreciate the yoga and understand it and use it probably in the same way that I did. You know, it, it's the typical thing that happens. You start going to one class per week, um, you get good experience from that and uh, maybe I can make time to go twice a week and oh, it's the off season, I can go three times a week. By the time I retired from training and competing myself, the thing I wanted to do was more yoga. You know, that was when I was able to start doing yoga every day and start going away to yoga 
uh, workshops at weekends instead of races and and, and this type of thing. Mm. So, and I can see that some of my athletes are on that path and they will probably be doing yoga beyond when they start doing triathlon. Mm. Um, but for a lot of triathletes, it's it's difficult, you know. And they they if they, they end up because they're a little bit time poor, they have a a level of sort of priority and in most people's heads going out and doing physical training mm. gets priority over doing the sort of softer practices like the yoga the um the weekly massage uh, you know these other things that we know are also beneficial to your performance but yeah there's there's only so much that people can fit into their lives yeah i've i've since learned that, that you know well i suppose i'm not since learned i've since become more aware of the fact that we're not always going to be athletes are we but we're always going to be humans and so if we lay the foundations for better human function, actually, that probably does lead to better athletic function. Absolutely. And, you know, you do tend to see that. And the people who are now feeling it on their bodies and realize that that, that something like yoga is a better <coughs> thing for them to be doing than just keep knocking out mm. the, the miles or, or whatever it might be. Um, that they are much more open to it and are prepared to spend a bit more time on it because they can see the immediate or immediate benefits. And of course, most of them would say, well, I wish I'd given it this priority mm. years ago, mm. but it's not within human nature to be able to project that forward and, yeah. uh, and, and see that. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're unusual for a, a lot of endurance athletes, but you, you don't swim anymore, do you? You don't run um, as far as I know, I know you cycle, but it's mostly for getting around rather than for training. Yeah, I've always cycled as a as a means of transport, actually, and and that is quite unusual in this in the, in this country. Um, somewhat to my you know continued surprise because it's just so convenient. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, and I, I, I obviously just not that wedded to training. You know, I've always enjoyed running. Um, but I think some of the aspects of running that I enjoyed were the meditative aspects of mm-hmm. it, and I've been able to rep- by and large replace that with mo- with a daily yoga practice. Mm. And I get, I guess your body gets all of the aerobic stimulation it needs from riding around because you know in Leeds here it's it's not flat, so you do have to work a bit harder coming uphill. So you're probably crossing the energy zones accidentally without any planning and. Um, I think that for health, I think that just generally having an active lifestyle is is good, you know, and 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 even things as simple as you know walking, mm. and and you know, both going for a walk, but also walking when you go to the shop or whatever it might be, you know. So I think that um, for general health, there's a lot that you can get just from that. Yeah, a lot easier on the body as well. Right, all of, particularly all of that downhill running you did. I guess you, I've never heard you complain about your knees, but uh, it's f- fairly common for people who are doing such heavy downhill running to have uh, have problems with knees. I guess. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. If that's maybe a little bit of a myth, because I think it possibly the other way. I think you get very strong from a lot of downhill okay. running, and that probably protects you to a large degree. But I, I think, yeah, you, you've got to look at. It a little bit more holistically isn't it you know and what 
are those people end up with injuries how much were they looking after the bodies what imbalances have they got there yeah. you know that that's that's what i would think so i'm fortunate fortunate in that i guess my yoga practice has helped to protect me in the last 20 mm. odd years mm. Well, Jack, we've been on a great journey, uh, both together through this coaching thing, you know, 20 odd years. And uh, um, thank you for talking us all through that. Um, It's been a a couple of hours of um, really interesting, engaging conversation. So thank you for thank you for being here. Okay, well, it's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it too, uh, Simon. And um, yeah, to look back on your part on it, it's been fantastic too. Thank you once again to Jack for being my guest, not just on this episode, but also the previous one. What a journey that's been for him in the last 20 plus years. And it seems like only yesterday when we were getting started with that Talent ID program. On top of Jack's coaching story, there are some very, very sound lessons in there for all age group triathletes. The most important one, I think, is the one of patience. You think about how long it took to develop Alistair and Jonathan into Olympic medalists and the sort of seven-year journey that Jack and Beth have been on, taking her up towards next year's Paris Olympics. So please bear that in mind when you're planning your own programmes. If you haven't already heard about them or listened to them, please check out my new bite-sized podcast episodes, which release every Saturday. They're approximately 10 minutes in length, and I share some insights on some very specific topics. And please make sure you check out our show notes for links to all of the items I've mentioned in this week and in previous weeks now if you could share the episode with just one person you think could benefit from listening then that would be amazing and i'd really appreciate it and if you've got a couple more minutes maybe you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode okay that's all for this week thanks again for being here next week i'll have another awesome guest and i hope you'll be able to join me